Hello. Strategy in its broadest sense covers a nation's ability to wage war as considered through the military lens, obviously, but also the economic, the political and the social. And the late 1790s is a period when, for Britain, its overall strategy in advancing its interests around the globe went through some remarkable changes, which is the subject of uh, the work of Rachel Blackman Rogers. Her PhD thesis has been looking at exactly this transformation. Indeed, that's why I was so keen to have her on the Napoleonic Quarterly to be our Royal Navial correspondent, as it were. Um, she's covered all the big battles of the 1790s and uh, will be taking us all the way through to the Nile coming up in season four. No spoilers. Um, well, Rachel, it's great to, to um, finally have the chance to talk to you about your, your PhD, which you've been working on for... Um, well, as is the case with PhDs for some time, but I really enjoyed watching your um, uh, thesis uh, presentation. Um, but I suppose the first, you know, the first question to begin with really is to ask you about how your interest in this period developed. Where, where did it all come from? Where did it start? Uh, so I, I was always interested in Nelson, as as most people are, I think, and I was I did a master's at King's College London in the history of war. And as part of that, I did uh, a sea power uh, module and I also looked at war reporting. And so my master's dissertation, I look, examined the influence of uh, newspapers on British strategy, looking at, in particular at the Battle of Camperdown in October 1797. I've yes, of course, Camperdown, which um, you've just covered off for us on the Napoleonic Quarterly. So I have never read any newspapers of the period, I confess, but it's something I'm very keen on doing. Um, how what what's it like looking at these looking at these papers, and how do you get a sense of you know they're not sort of set out like the newspapers of today? No, I think they're really interesting. I mean, they don't have um, named correspondents. They don't have articles in the same sense that we're used to them um what they do is they they'll change story from paragraph to paragraph with various reports perhaps intersected and a few that will be labeled up um but what they do which is really interesting is that they will weave their agendas through any type of news um and at the end they'll be they'll have a paragraph and at the end, there'll be just some little sarcastic comment that will relate back to what their agenda is. And so they're quite fascinating to read from cover to cover because that's how you get a sense of that repetition of what they're trying to say, what their agenda is, how they're representing and what interests they're representing. So, yeah, and, and I suppose on the British press, it, does it essentially boil down into pro pro-pit, pro-government and and those who are against him? Um, I don't think it's totally that straightforward. I mean, the Times is often uh, a pro-government, definitely a pro-government newspaper, but it's not as pro-government as perhaps the true Britain. Um, and it's trying much harder to be more objective and occasionally is critical. So, it's not quite as straightforward as it might sound. And there's and the newspapers, there's a range of um, uh, reporting styles. Uh, some are trying to be more objective than others. Some aren't trying at all. Um, and, and so it depends on which newspapers you look at. 
against the government, the Morning Chronicle is probably one of the best. And actually, I think it's one of the best written newspapers. It's trying much harder to be objective. It tries to lay out a logical argument to support its agenda. And its reporting is is fairly thorough. Um, the Times is also a fairly good newspaper to look at and gives a, a, tries to give a slightly more balanced view from a pro-government stance. And just to ask in a very practical sense, um, so I, I don't have any sort of access to any sort of academic um, uh, resources. If you're just, you know, an average... Um, an average amateur historian on the street, as it were. <laughs> um, how would you go about accessing these newspapers? Well, these days they're actually quite easy to access in the sense that they're online. Um, uh, Gale ha have a database uh, which you can access and use search tools uh, for their database. Um, access to that is often through institutions or it can be for free if you go to visit the British Library. Um, I think you can access the online databases there. Yeah, I think uh, an afternoon at the British Library uh, doing that sounds like a good a good thing for me. And presumably, as you were reading those papers and their coverage of Camperdown Field Masters, you would have got some gleanings of what was to turn into your, your PhD thesis. Uh, yes, I I started to um, look at that interaction between uh, strategy and and culture and how it was represented and how propaganda would feed into identity and how Britain conceived itself and and looked at the war, and so I came up with this uh, idea that I wanted to look at this particular three-year period uh, because this was when Britain realised that it was engaged in an unlimited war um, and I wanted to look at how it had started out and uh, the strategy it had begun with and then how that had entered this phase of transformation. Yeah because the, the 1790s is not quite so prominent in terms of the you know the big historians looking at this this period as a whole but you know as we've seen from the naval battles that you've described these were pretty big deals for for britain at the time yes the traditional historiography tends to uh, certainly for strategic and military historians is often seen as a pe period of failure and paralysis in the face of French aggression and the unlimited threat of invasion. Um, and these battles are often uh, viewed uh, as a moral tonic rather than as a strategic um, uh, and as a strategic success. And what Britain was actually trying to do is often left behind. I think that's because a teleo teleological view is used. And what historians know is that the war doesn't end in 1798. It continues for a, a much longer period and then we move into the Napoleonic Wars. And so that failure to end the war at that point influences the way that period is viewed. Yeah. So we're coming to the sort of nub of of your your thesis here, which is to ask why you think this period does matter more uh, than perhaps has previously been appreciated? Oh, no, absolutely, because I think unless you understand the nature of these wars, 
and you connect the nature and characteristics of the war to what Britain was trying to do and what it was doing, what ha- the efforts it was making during this period, and what it was actually trying to do. And what it was trying to do was meet the challenge of unlimited war. And that meant not only dealing with the opposition at home, that also meant dealing with opposition abroad. And if you didn't uh, provide security, then um, Britain was unwilling to continue to fund the war and support it. And so it was a it, it was a totally different situation. And when you connect those together, what you see is a real success story. Ah, yes. And that's that's interesting, isn't it? So you're saying that somehow getting from A to B was it was much more than a, a moral tonic, the battles that it was when you sort of bring everything together that you see a country that is able to fight effectively against an enemy for potentially a long period of time, as was to turn out to be the case. Yes, I mean, Britain needed to understand the necessity of the war. They needed to understand that Britain had to be involved, what was its objectives, and they became clarified at the end of this period as a strategy of overthrow. Um, And Britain then uh, had command of the seas, it could continue to uh, finance the war, because it could continue to support and protect its trade. And then it was simply a question of waiting for the opportunity to continue the war in Europe. Um, And they were looking for an opportunity such as the Peninsula War campaign would eventually provide them with. God, you know, now I start to think about it, how you actually go about conceptualising a lot of this and trying to make sense of what is such a, I mean, this is a pretty big topic, you know, I mean, so do we, for example, break it down and look at the, you know, Bank of England stuff in 1797 and the, the financial stuff and then move on to the, um, you know, anti-French propaganda and then look at the military stuff and and, and the naval do, do you do you break it down into those components or do you try and um find some other way of approaching this even chronologically god forbid <laughs> um i think it's easiest to conceive um by separating those sections out in fact so i've looked at uh, a strategic evolution what britain was doing strategically and uh, then I've looked at um, the uh, how the bank was used as part of that strategy to protect Britain from the threat of invasion. And then I've looked at this cultural transformation that was also taking place within the Navy to enable that strategy. And then I've looked at how um, Britain, how the government were suppressing opposition, gathering consensus and using a maritime identity uh, through British culture in order to pull that consensus together. But that consensus wasn't going to come without the strategic success and the security that that provided. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about Britain as a sort of a coherent uh, whole in this period and compared with other national actors of the time. I mean, France is in, you know, its great political turmoil of the 1790s, of course. Maybe Prussia is a better example to compare with where throughout this period you do have sort of competing um, impulses to withdraw and then to get involved and you know a clear war party emerging and we see that with 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 Austria as well 
but Britain is a different. Is, is, can we say that Britain is sufficiently differently governed, its system of governance, which does allow, it's sort of more pluralistic, you know, it, it does allow for more voices to be heard. And I don't mean to say this in a, you know, we're both British and we, we're not sort of patting ourselves on the back, but just looking at it completely objectively. What Britain had was, in fact, the, from the 1688 Glorious Revolution and what that settlement provided was it allowed for an expansion of executive power and it guaranteed it as temporary because what the settlement provided for was the freedom of speech in Parliament and that allowed for the emergence of an opposition within Parliament uh, without fear of suddenly being accused of treason or, or being imprisoned or worse, uh, decapitated. Um, and I think that made a significant difference and that sovereignty within Parliament and that ability to have full discourse and debate within Parliament provided that strong uh, base of which you're describing, I think. Wow, I didn't I didn't realise we were going to get so Whiggish. Um, but... <laughs> But here we are. Um, but, you know, it's. I think you see it here. You know, there are throughout the different periods of British parliamentary history debates about the extent to which the Glorious Revolution has helped things along and, you know, it d does create a country which, or a polity maybe, which is able to um, uh, go about its business in arguably more effectively in some ways than some others but but i think what you're saying here is well the 1790s is let, let, let's say at the very least a good case study for something like this because here you do have the the process of a strategic transformation that has to that can't come from nowhere it has to it has to take place not just in parliament but in the city and uh, in the in the massive institution of the royal navy etc so I suppose what we're really talking about so far is the foundation, um, a system that allows for that strategic transformation. Um, and we should probably come on to what that strategic transformation looks like left, but next. But maybe just one final word from you on, on, on that foundation. Am I, is that about right, would you say, the way I've characterised it? Yes, I think our open political system, um, based uh, in, a, in an economy based on maritime trade and, and as a sea power certainly enabled uh, Britain to, to, to adapt uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an easier, quicker way. And I, I just think uh, Britain understood that it was an unlimited war much earlier than the European nations did. And they were much more able, they were in a much better position to react to that because they could secure the British Isles and then from that um, react. So I think uh, those things did provide Britain with an advantage. Yes, you're right. Well, I think that then speaks to my next question, which is about um, the, uh, you know, the dieting adverts with their before and after pictures. So if we're looking at the, the strategic transformation, what does the before picture look like? And, and then what does the after picture look like in, in terms of this, this, these years that you've been studying? Uh, so uh, Britain entered the war believing itself to be engaged in a limited economic war. And so it embarked on a limited maritime strategy aimed directly at the French 
Navy, uh, they had, uh, so their initial strategy was to launch blockades of the two main French fleets at Brest and Toulon with the ultimate aim of destroying them if possible. Um, this would prevent the French Navy from challenging the coalition's command. There was a West Indies strategy with both naval and commercial objectives. Uh, commercially, it provided security for British trade, reassuring the city. Um, but it also denied France access to its colonial wealth. Um, and this would be quite devastating for its economy. And its ulterior naval objectives were to deny France access to its naval resources, its seamen and shipping. And this would eventually tell on the continent this, this denial as Britain's uh, process of attrition against uh, French Navy, naval resources uh, wore, um, wore down uh, the French uh, naval resistance. And Britain was also um, launching a campaign into Flanders. Uh, this was the best location from which the French could launch a credible invasion threat. But also these continental um, expeditions were seen as an insurance policy directing French attention, keeping French attention firmly focused on the continent and away from Britain and creating a number of um, fronts on which France would have to try and fight. So they were fighting in the Pyrenees, on the Rhine and also in Flanders. Yeah, OK, I begin to appreciate then the evolution that we've seen, I mean, <laughs> through the um, entirely artificial um, structures of the Napoleonic Quarterly podcast, in uh, season one, Britain sort of is a bit slow to get going. In season two, that's 1794 and five, Britain is, you know, being doing fairly piecemeal activity really uh in in you know some colonial places but is like the Caribbean but but is then you know is, it clearly has um economic objectives in mind as it seeks out that grain convoy um which does manage to get through to France in, in the glorious first of June um uh, uh, but then you know things in the Mediterranean theatre it starts to get it starts to become less clear as to how British naval um, priorities are are contributing to anything other than than you know I wouldn't say a death struggle but 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 something more fundamental in terms I think things have somehow got a lot more serious in terms of the the, the struggle with with revolutionary and indeed arguably post-revolutionary France in the, in the sense that at least you're past Thermidor at least. So um, I, see, well, I, th I suppose what I'm saying is that it starts to get a bit messy by 1796. Would you say that by then we're, that Britain is beginning to embrace a more, not total war, but a more unlimited war aims? I think Britain is, is very resistant um, within Britain, but the strategy is the recognition that France is building a maritime federation uh, to try and threaten Britain and force Britain to bend to French political will. And Rachel, what do you mean by maritime federation there? So the glorious 1st of June had effectively completed the defeat of the French Navy. And that meant technically that France could have been expected to negotiate for peace uh, because it had nothing left to threaten Britain with. Um, but they didn't. And what they did was they acquired the Dutch Navy and they would defeat the Spanish and then 
um, eventually Spain went from neutral to French ally and there was a federation then of French resources, Dutch and Spanish. And the French remembered from the American War of Independence that it was a maritime federation that had defeated the British. Um, and the British remembered this as well and were determined that this was not going to happen. Would you say that that um, realisation that what the Royal Navy was up against wasn't just uh, you know, a single navy, but this maritime federation as as you describe it was was that just a reactive response to the circumstances that were facing it as opposed to something more thought through and deliberate on the british side i think it was a reaction to the shock it was the realization that france yeah. weren't intending to negotiate peace uh, and the, and therefore and as their efforts renewed into flanders and spain they their ideas became fairly clear. They weren't prepared to give up the idea that they could threaten Britain. And so Britain had to then prepare um, and mobilise for an unlimited war. Um, I think it's a question of realisation. It's actually quite difficult to understand contemporary events as they happen. I think uh, we often forget this. And so Britain was trying to interpret what was happening as it was happening. It was only because they had succeeded where their continental allies hadn't in defeating the French at so early in the war that they were able to recognise this uh, change in French warfare. Yeah, and I suppose one place where you have no choice but to try to interpret things that are happening contemporaneously as quickly as possible and respond to them is government and the british government of the time you know as as is the case today has to uh, work out its approach pretty quickly and so um you know as you, as you look at strategy how much was government playing a leadership the british government the administration of pitt playing that leadership role in realising this before others and pushing things forward on their own terms? Or was it other institutions um, within that sort of wider British polity? I, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the City of London or the Navy itself uh, or, or, or another institution or, or group that was pushing forward the, the need to really change the approach and uh, try to secure Britain's longer-term interests against this emerging threat? Well, certainly the Navy was communicating back from the front line into government uh, what the nature of the war was. And in fact, you know, as Nelson in 1795 watched the French in uh, the Ligur off the Ligurian coast and in 1796, he saw what was happening and thought this is something quite different and in fact a lot of the records comment this is something quite different coming through the navy feeding into government government were also receiving this through diplomatic sources and intelligence gathering um, and then they were going to have to bring the city and uh, other institutions within britain with them so the government was very much leading um, this and they were trying to um, alleviate frictions that were gathering in Britain at the necessary expansion of their power. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, then the next question is about when this process of strategic transformation is over. Is it possible to identify a moment when you can say very clearly, uh, yeah, now Britain is, is totally on it? Um, and 
we haven't yet got to the events of 1798, but you know the Nile is such a defining moment in in British naval history that I just wonder whether it might be then, or just you know the the, the tussle for the Mediterranean in general and the great anxieties that gnawed away at politicians back in London as they tried to uh, you know pick up on the latest rumours and intelligence of what on earth was going on and was it was it 1798 that was a moment when you can say yeah the strategic transformation was complete or or did it take a bit longer. Uh, well, I think you could, um, in many ways, see 1798 as the end of a of a of a process, and certainly contemporaries at the time commented that it was the end of the beginning. Um, and there was definitely um, a feeling that the uh, now Britain had command of all the seas. Um, and it was simply a question of waiting for an opportunity to um, launch a campaign successfully in Europe. And this was now the focus. There was a new uh, consensus around the uh, strategic objectives of overthrow. And Henry Dundas, who was Secretary of State for War, wrote that there was no longer any talk of peace within the country and that there was a general sense of determination and resolution that uh, the war would continue and that Britain was committed to the end. Well, of course, the funny thing is, it's just a few years until you have British hand-wringing ahead of the Peace of Amiens, you know, after uh, Marengo and in the, the, you know, those first months of the 19th century, where there is a real uncertainty about whether the war should continue. The, the situation had changed again, and and I, and I suppose is that a is that a problem for you for your the arguments you've been making in in the sense that there you have a Britain that all of a sudden wants to at the very least pause, but is you know that as the number of allies falls away, that determination articulated by Dundas starts to feel like it's wearing a little bit thin. Um, I don't I don't think so. Firstly, because. I'm looking at history going forwards. So when he wrote in 1798, he would have no idea that the second coalition that was forming before his eyes would be ineffective um, and that, that that would eventually collapse. Also, the peace was really more about Britain's relationship with Ireland from Britain's perspective um, and the need to uh, consolidate that relationship um, and for France, it was simply a matter of exhaustion and it was a brief pause with no one really stopping, to be honest. And no one really saw it as an actual stop, uh, full stop. It was a question of um, trying something a little different, but it was simply a continuation. Uh, so, no, I don't think it really undermines the argument. I think the naval battles that follow Copenhagen and Trafalgar are really about Britain exercising command of the sea and continuing to put um, to deal with neutrals in the case of the Battle of Copenhagen and to deal with um, any challenges to that command. Of course, some people might say that um, the uh, great decommissioning that you saw during Amiens and you know that there had to be a great scramble. Um, uh, once war became, you know, it, when it became clear again that war was once again going to be inevitable, it, this idea of a sudden dip that 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 
you know, everyone just sort of relaxed and then suddenly had to scramble to get ready for Trafalgar again. I think I think what you're saying is you, you would downplay the significance of that. Is is that right? And you you you'd simply say that the the processes that had that Britain had gone through in the 1790s meant that even if there was a temporary downing of tools, it was very easy for those tools like the the navy's ultimate ability to overwhelm its opponents was you know that that was simply a, a part of the process and um, something that could be discounted in the longer run yes i think it's easy to overplay what were in fact minor bumps um because you'd fully right. mobilized the navy um it was fully manned it was people were trained britain had the manpower britain had the technology the ships didn't just disappear um, so it wasn't actually that difficult to remobilize in such, and we're only talking about a period, a very short period, in fact. Yeah. Well, Rachel, we haven't talked about tactics uh, very much um, on, on on the navy, and, and it's not something that concerns you uh, in terms of your your overall ap- approach to to the period. But you, you know, when when you look at these battles, well, I don't know actually. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that in the sense that. Um, you know the way that Howe, for example, was embracing some of the, um, you know, approaches which had been developed in the 1780s, for example. That, that, that these things mattered. These these were a part of, an, a quintessential part of what made the Royal Navy um, able to chalk up victory after victory. Oh yes, there was definitely a, a continuation, um, and in fact, the uh, tactics that Howe was developing were built on his experiences from the American War of Independence and his desire to create greater decisiveness because what he had witnessed was that the French would very often or the enemy would very often uh, try to escape from or nullify Britain's attempt to come into close action when British advantages would be displayed to greater advantage. And so what he actually developed was a reversion in many ways to Elizabethan tactics Um, And that cutting through the line to prevent the escape, overwhelming an air, uh, a part of the line that was weaker and um, developing a more decisive uh, approach. And and that's what he was and that's what he was looking at. Well, just to finish, finish, Rachel, I I think that um, one of the really interesting bits, you see, the problem is a lot of the books that are available, you know, in in the bookshops that people like me read about they te- they'd look at a particular aspect of this you, often the military um sometimes the political but it's that that sort of broader approach i mean there are books roger knight's book for example on on um h- how britain organized itself coherently uh, is, is a good example of that but but what, what becomes interesting there is that y- y- you know it becomes much more powerful uh, to think about the period as it would have been at the time when you're looking at um, the culture of, uh, you know, of what's whether it's newspapers or what's going on in theatres at the time, or even as, uh, to come back to where we started, reading the newspapers and realising that you can still be the most powerful person um, in the United Kingdom, but ultimately... There's no satellite intelligence, no satellite imagery. You're going to have to wait many weeks before the actual realities of the situation become clear back home. It's a very different world. 
Uh, yes, that's that's very true. And, and Roger Knight's book is is an excellent uh, book to use. Um, but he's covering a much longer period of time, and yeah. therefore can only really uh, skate over some of this in the seventeen nineties. And so. Uh, by looking at it in greater detail is when you can, for example, look at the what's termed the financial crisis and see its reality a little more, a little differently um, as a government manoeuvre to overcome the bank's resistance um, to funding the war. And uh, you can look more closely at the efforts the government made to build a maritime identity and a, a national belief in the uh, um, Navy and the bank and parliament as the keys of British security and success. Well, Rachel, what's coming up for you? So, you, you know, you've, you've got through this, this PhD process. What, what, are your, what are your plans now as, 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 you know, in terms of looking at the, looking at the period? Um, I think, uh, well, I don't know yet. <laughs> um, hopefully, it would be great to uh, turn this into a book and, yeah. uh, and get that out there. Um, it's also an approach that I'd like to use, and I think you can connect to other conflicts, um, this knitting together of uh, culture and strategy using the nature of war as the guide to uh looking at uh, cultural transformations, I think connecting the two more closely is is invaluable. And other unlimited conflicts such as the War of the Spanish Succession um, in the 1600s and early 1700s, World War One and World War Two, and they, they're all, all these unlimited conflicts have those characteristics. Yeah, it's clear that um, the themes that we've been talking about today apply not just to this period, but to, but to many others, as as you say. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for um, being such a stalwart contributor to the Napoleonic Quarterly. It's been great talking to you. I, I think I haven't totted up the numbers, but I'm pretty sure you're the you've done the most numbers of segments uh, so far. Um, but you know that that's because you've been looking at this period. Um, so closely it's been great to have you on so thank you so much Rachel it's been it's been fantastic no problem <laughs> and listeners can look forward to a little bit more of Rachel um, uh, covering uh, the, uh, the, the the Mediterranean toings and froings of 1798 before the Battle of the Nile still to come in season four okay i think that's it for this episode um let's leave things there for now as always um i do hope you might consider following the napoleonic quarterly on twitter it's at napoleonic underscore q um uh, and of course there's always that five star review option uh, if you feel moved to do so on your podcast provider of choice um meanwhile though uh, there's a little there's another interview coming up next week so much more to look forward to for now bye bye <laughs>